Yo, what's up? What's good? What's good? What's good? So did you watch the slugfest? You thought it was a... I, I was like, is this like a UFC fight versus a heavyweight fight? I was expecting a heavyweight fight, and I think we got... We got that fight that time I went to your house, and um, and that dude's leg turned into rubber. I was like, what the fuck is... What is that? It's like a, oh, a I remember rubber that. It was just like jello. Yeah, that was that was brutal. That was, that was uh... Yeah, I don't know, man. I, that Mark Hamill said... I was in the Star Wars Holiday Special, and that's the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> that was, yeah, dude, that was his mean, comment on the debate, so, you know. Uh, it was a rough one. But you know what the problem is? I think both of them are rope-a-dopers. So I feel like both of them were trying to rope-a-dope the other person. Well, Biden clearly had been coached that the best way to deal with Trump is to try to counterpunch him. But the problem is Trump is just like a barrage of venom and hate and vitriol. And so at some point, you have to respond. I actually thought that Trump was doing very well initially at like kind of ignoring him. But then eventually he, he broke through the, the shell, right? And then there was very little that Biden could do to ignore him. I mean, I think in the beginning, Trump was trying to do the, the classic, like kind of like a Mike Tyson in there. It was like, I'm going to ignore the questions. And I'm going to call you a socialist. And, and, and I'm going to try to get... I thought Trump had a very interesting strategy. Where I feel like he was trying to get Biden to admit something that he could then use to say, see, I told you he's a socialist captured by the radical left. It's a very interesting attack, which I thought had no resonance, but more and more as I've been talking to, uh, I don't know, how, what do you want to call them, wealthier Democrats? I, you were calling them capitalists. Yeah, uh, I think the polite way to put it is the capital wing of the party. The capital wing of the party. I didn't realize that this attack that Biden is captured by the radical socialists, that Biden wants to do something much more radical than Obama and Clinton actually has some resonance. Well, he, and, you know, he really disappointed me last night in some of his messaging So because his response to that was, I am the Democratic Party, which was like very authoritarian and very a little scary in the exact opposite of what we heard out of, say, the Sanders campaign, whose whole slogan was not me, us. Right? And he's like, not us, me. You know, straight up. It's all me. Even, even He even rejected yeah. the Green New Deal. And we'll get to that later in the way he rejects a lot of uh, progressive points. But he's straight up said, I do not support the Green New Deal. I support the Biden deal. I, have, I got a Biden plan. And so it was very much him trying to separate himself. Saying, like, I stand apart from the rest of the party. And I stand apart from the progressive way. Well, it was an interesting fight because I maybe you're right. Maybe he's fallen into a trap that Trump has set for him. Where Trump basically is trying to say, look, you're captured by the progressive wing. You're, you're an empty suit. You know, you're a weak old man who's a little bit senile, who's secretly going to let AOC in the middle of the night write all your plans. And I mean, I was just reading, a Dan, I was just reading a Dan Crenshaw tweet, and he said, Joe Biden made it clear last night he is a Democratic Party. He acts like he's the moderate who will control the radical left, but the, really, the reality is the exact opposite. It's the radical left who controls Joe Biden. Just look at his own words from the debate. Thread. And so, I mean, yeah, they're, so they're going to attack him on this that. This has become the gonna... debate. But I don't know how this became the debate. And I guess you're right. Maybe Biden hand, mishandled it, right? Because Biden basically seems like he's bought into this idea that he's the wall between America and radical leftism instead of attacking the idea that there is a radical left. I mean, is there even a radical left of the Democratic Party? Has anybody ever seen them? I mean, I can see myself in the, in the screen right now because we're, we're chatting. But I, I, think, I think they're talking about people... But are you like, a radical leftist, Alton? I'm I mean, not. I'm not. 
I mean, clearly I'm not, but maybe to them. I don't know. I, I like Aren't social. Are you a capitalist homeowner? Yeah, but you know, I, I like social welfare programs. I'm, you know, all about that. I'm all about. You don't uh, want people to starve in the streets, right? I mean, like I'm living in California, and I'm like, I think the government should be doing something about the homelessness problem here. You know well, I, I keep mean? telling them, like, but, I'm from New Orleans, man. I know what happens when people start starving in the streets. It doesn't go well for anybody. <laughs> Yeah, and has that become radical leftism? Is the idea that you should take care of people what it means to be a radical leftist now? Yes. Yeah. I think, I think frankly, if we're in this weird Punnett Square that people don't want to acknowledge right now, but there's a division in both parties, more so on the quote-unquote left and the Democratic side, and we've discussed it before, about whether or not you believe in nationalism or not. And I think the people that they're now calling the radical left is if you both support social welfare programs and you're a nationalist, and you're a leftist, then you become the radical left. If you're in this global capitalist group of the party, the neoliberal wing, then you're just a moderate. That's what we, that's what we call them now, right? Well, I think the most interesting thing was, um, I really liked it. I think one of his best lines was when he said, uh, Antifa is not an organization, it's an idea. Though I don't know what he was trying to say there exactly, but I think we have well, to he was, be he was quoting himself. Trump's... Uh, Justice Department, right? I think they came up with that concept. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I think we have to be honest with ourselves, right? America does not really have a left, an organized militant left that's anywhere uh, comparable with the large right. The organized militant, well-funded arm, right? And that America, I think this may be going to give me a bit of trouble, but I think, you know, I think the American establishment and I mean establishment in the broadest sense of the word, has a center-right bias, right? And has allowed the right to organize and develop in ways that it has prevented the left from um, organizing and developing. And I think because of that, we see even our political discourse is tilted to the right. Oh, I mean, that's been going on for a long time, though. Um, yeah, I think it's a long process. I think it's been, I mean, arguably this has been going on at least since McCarthy, right? And the suppression of of what I guess you could claim was a left. Right? A true the left. Communist Party yeah, the in true America. Left. yeah, the Communist Party. The true left. Mm -hmm. And once you ban that, right, ever since then I feel like the left in the US has been in this weird position of trying to move ever closer to the right. Because if they're labeled the left, then it becomes open for serious well, I, suppression. Like the way I, I tend to prefer the language of insurgency. So I see it more as the left has just been getting infiltrated by the right. I feel like over and over people move as the right pulls for the right, people s separate from that party and then join the quote-unquote left, which is the Democratic Party at this point in history, right? It wasn't always. And so we get pulled further and further to the right. And Joe Biden's kind of the epitome of this happening in this era because, I mean, you see, it was very clear last night that he's playing towards this very narrow group of, you know, what they call the Obama-Trump voters. For some reason, they really, they really want those people back they feel like it was very important for them to win that segment. I mean, he, he didn't support Green New Deal. They asked him point blank, Alden, do you support Black Lives Matter? And he would not say it. He wouldn't do it. But Joe Biden, Joe Biden, I think, was very clear. I mean, I think, I think it's sometimes it's a bit unfair to say that Joe Biden is like pandering to Obama Trump voters because I feel like the Joe Biden voter has been a very consistent voter, right? I mean, Joe Biden, I think, is a man who came into politics, you know, towards the end of the 60s, uh, early 70s, 
as a defender of what he calls the suburbs, right? And as a defender of the idea that we weren't going to do uh, busing for integration. Oh, sure. But I mean, Joe but, Biden. But maybe the suburbs Joe have changed. Biden has, and he said that. I thought that was one of his best lines. He's like, the suburbs have changed. Trump has never been to the suburbs. And so I thought it was in that second part of the debate where Joe Biden started to actually sort of differentiate himself. And sort of by allowing Trump to keep talking, sort of allow Trump to show himself as kind of this... Because Trump wants sometimes to pretend that he's a conservative, right? Joe Biden, I think, in the second part of the debate showed you that he's actually the true conservative and that Trump is some kind of weird fringe radical. And I, I don't know to what extent that makes us happy as Democrats because, I mean, some of us in the Democratic Party, I think this is a fight that still needs to be had, believe that the country actually needs change. I don't, think, I, that think, he's a, I don't Biden, think he's a fringe radical. I just think that he made the point that he's the true conservative and that Trump is maybe something different. I'll give no, you that. I'm saying, I think Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden showed in the second half of the debate that he is the true conservative, and that Trump is something different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's Trump, true. Though. Trump is a dude who's like destabilizing the machine, which is really funny, because I'm always talking about my boy who is still working in the White House. But I remember a few years ago under Obama, he was like, you know, I think Obama's deeply unsettling uh, the nation, the state. You know, he's causing it to rotate too rapidly. He's causing us uh, to change too fast. And I'm like, look, you work for Trump. Trump seems to be a deep unsettler, right? If there's anything that Trump has going for him is he's a disruptor, right? And I guess what's hard is to think whether or not oh, Biden can actually win the election by saying he's not going to disrupt anything. Well, at some point, he's going to be forced to take a position, though. I mean... His whole thing seems to be trying to not, like you said it earlier, to be a do-nothing, right? Like they asked him, will he abolish the filibuster? No answer. He squirms out of the way. They asked him, uh, will you pack the courts? No answer. Squirms out of the way. And so he's trying to give these non-answers and just seem as like, he's also doing this weird thing last night I really did not like. I thought it was the worst thing he did all night, actually. When he kept doing this weird, like, laughing, chuckling thing when, when Trump would speak, it came across to me very smarmy. Like, I don't know. I, I wasn't a big fan of that. So I th Oh, yeah, because I guess he's doing this classic thing that you saw, you know, you saw Obama do it. You saw Hillary do it. It's this idea that, you know, you look at the other guy and you're like, huh, he's not serious. Huh, he's a buffoon. You know, I, I'm common sense Joe, right? I'm the, the constructed wisdom from on high. Well, one of his favorite uh, exclamations is, come on, man. He says that all the time. <laughs> Right? I think that kind of worked for him a little bit. The come on, man, you're a clown. But I don't know. Maybe it can be turned against him, right? This idea that he's not taking... So he lost. So they did, the some, they did some polls. They did two types of polls after the election. They did a sound on and a sound off poll, like they do for two different, control, two different groups. And Biden won the sound on poll 49 to 41. And Trump won the sound off poll 65-35. Yeah, I mean... I was watching it with my wife, and she was like, Biden looks really uncomfortable. He looks really old. That was the other thing she kept bringing up. I mean, she wasn't listening to it as closely, and she was like, he looks really old. Plus, I think, I feel like his makeup was bad. Well, Trump's, like, he Trump's looks really uh, I mean, Trump's makeup. I mean, <laughs> what are we talking about here? You know? <laughs> I mean, Trump at least looked like he had a little more color in his face. Well, a little. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem is that you're like, you're competing mm. with Trump. And so like you look pasty no matter what. Like you don't look like you're in Technicolor. Yeah, Trump looked like he was in like uh, American Werewolf in London. Like he had that much makeup on his face. <laughs> like for real. I think the problem is that 
is that I think Trump was trying to get Biden to say something that he could pin on Biden to say, you know, look, he really is a socialist. He really is controlled by the radical left. I think Biden did a pretty good job of, like, avoiding that. Though, I do kind of wish... But except they're still doing it. <laughs> yeah, they're still doing it. So, I mean, maybe it doesn't matter. But I do kind of wish that Biden uh, would do what my dad often says, right? Which is, like, use these occasions to be teachable moments. Like, you know, like, instead of being afraid of saying Black Lives Matter, why don't you just say why Black Lives Matter is important? Yeah, and what... He, he could have, as we call it in our community, he could have sunned Trump with that. He could have just been like, turned to Trump and been like, yo, Black Lives Matter. You don't think? Let me tell you why. Yeah. You don't believe that? And then, and then turn to the camera and be like, see, that's the problem with this fool. He doesn't even understand these basic concepts. Trying to call me stupid, blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't have that level. I mean, frankly, we know it. He's not on Trump's level when it comes to being a polemical speaker. He's just not. He's no AOC. Oh, right. no. I mean, AOC would have sunned the well, boy. Well, Alden, Alden, I gotta say it. I kind of wish Kanye was out there last night. <laughs> oh, Kanye? Kanye would have been great last night. Admit it. He would have been amazing. Kanye would have had this moment in the middle of the debate where he would have been like, all I want to do is talk about abortion and cry for Chicago. Yeah, and he would say both, he would have called both of them racist. He would have made them both say Black Lives Matter. Admit being, Kanye being out there would have been good. I need, I, I feel like Kanye would have, would have, talked mostly about abortion which strangely didn't come up very much during the debate especially with well because like you said name? well but you said biden's scared to upset the, that segment of voters like he he really thinks he's going to shave off even people that's the thing the democrats don't get about the way the republicans have built their party non-negotiables are non-negotiables period the people that are pro-life quote-unquote they're never going to vote democrat they're not because they want Roe overturned. They have strong feelings about it. And so he's trying to not bring it up and think, oh, maybe my, not mentioning it, it's gonna do something. No, it's not. For them, a non-negotiable is a true non-negotiable. They're not going back there. I thought the one good thing he did is when they brought up the judge, uh, Barrett, he brought up the Affordable Care Act. Yes, mm, that was And the idea of pre-existing conditions. And I thought that was smart because I felt like what Trump was trying to do and what Trump did sort of effectively is he denied Biden the opportunity of the airspace to talk about his policy platform. Because the Republicans' policy platform, I think, is actually really unpopular, especially on economic issues. Though, afterwards, I was in this new exclusive hot chili app uh, where my friend at Facebook was making fun of me. He was like, oh, so it's invite only, huh? Uh, and he sent me, like, a hot chili. I was like, yeah, I guess I've become one of those people, those toolboxes who's in the hot chili app. But this app called Clubhouse, and, like, <clears throat> I was talking to, I guess, what we might call the capitalist wing of the Democratic Party. And I was surprised. I mean, and one of the arguments they were making is that actually Biden and Democrats in general should stop talking about economic issues. It should focus only on social issues and that we could really broaden the party if we talk about social issues. But I think that's a, I don't know, I think that might be mistaken. Well, I mean, that's kind of what your boy, uh, I think it was uh, Nils was talking about in that article. He was saying the parties have gotten to a point to where they're not that different. Their platforms really aren't. And that's why they're not talking about the platforms. It's these very narrow, narrow differences. And the main thing that what I can call, you know, your capital wing of the party, the Republican wing of the party, whatever you want to call them, they, they don't want to pay taxes. And they don't, and as a result, they don't want social programs, right? So they just want to talk about superficial issues, right? And, and give a little lip service to that and figure that'll be the dividing line and have people vote on their feelings instead of their pocketbooks. But 
And the ironic part is they're 100% voting on their pocketbooks, you know? Um, and, and the big, and we've discussed this, uh, the part of the big secret is that we have these capital types in our party and maybe their positions are a little less flexible than our Republican counterparts. Or I guess their position of them being in the Democratic Party is like, <clears throat> I mean, I think the problem is, is that maybe they're a little bit more comfortable about voting Republican, right? I mean, they're not like... Well, they're, they're more comfortable about making, they don't care about American labor. I think that's the big secret that no one wants to talk about is that the center of both parties at this point are very near liberal and don't really care that much about American labor. Well, they care about asset price protection more than they care about labor. And I think we're I think the US is entering a very scary phase and I think this might be the the, the crux of the emergency. Asset price protection and capital gains. They care about those two. And capital gains. Yeah, yeah. So I mean the big argument I was hearing on Clubhouse was that and I don't even think this is part of Biden's program, so I'm kind of confused about where this is coming from. But there's been this constant discussion that Biden or the Democrats will raise the capital gains taxes again to 50%, which as far as I can tell is not true. But um, but I just thought it was interesting that this seems to be the attack that's coming. And the idea that, I mean, the idea I think seems to be that they're suggesting that, you know, our capital gains are too high. But capital gains have become incredibly low and much lower than the, the taxes on wages. And so it is an interesting position to be a Democrat, but to believe, right, that, that capital gains should be dramatically lower than, than the taxes on labor. Well, because pe pe people feel that capital should have freedom, especially if you're a globalist, right? Like that's, 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 that's why I keep focusing on this like global. You also, you also get it from Trump. So Trump, I think, has done a really good job of doublespeak, right? Trump is able to message on both sides. So Trump admits, right, he says, you know, I paid millions of dollars in taxes. And what he means is he paid, like, his Social Security taxes. He paid some random taxes associated with laborers that he hired. But he's like, I didn't pay any fucking, I didn't pay any income tax. Because, I mean, who does that, right? I mean, that's, that's for chumps, right? Income taxes are for chumps. But somehow, on the Republican side, they've been able to basically take both positions, right? Take, you know, the, okay, we care about labor, but we also don't pay taxes. Because, I mean, taxes are for chumps. But then the Democrats find themselves in this more difficult position of being like, oh, well, the other guy is sort of saying we're going to pay taxes, but sort of saying you don't have to pay taxes. Well, what's our position going to be? Nothing. Our position is nothing because Joe Biden doesn't want to change anything. Like he, he funny enough, though, I mean, you're the one that shared our little group. I mean, Joe Biden paid a lot of taxes. He likes taxes. He has no problem with taxes personally. I, I think the thing that Joe Biden is trying to say and I think it might also be a little bit idealistic or perhaps fanciful, but whatever. I think Joe Biden is like, look, who's afraid of honest taxes? You can pay your 20%. It's fine. It's good guys do it, right? Good guys pay their taxes. And honest people pay their taxes, right? And I think Joe Biden is not a globalist, right? I mean, I think Joe Biden is like a, a good old suburban boy, whatever that's supposed to mean. I mean, I think the suburbs in the US give you this other weird thing, which is this idea of choice. The idea that, you know, you would have effective communities and you would get to choose who well, that's, you that's have a, affinities with. That's 100% what the suburbs are about. And that's what makes su the suburbs uniquely American, right? I'd say phenomena is that it's a lot of people deciding that, hey, I want to live around these types of people in this type of way. 
and I should be allowed to choose, right? Yeah. Who I get to live with. And it's my right. My faith community. And, 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 that, and my isn't right. that the whole point? And to them, that's the purpose. Like that's uniquely American. Their ability to choose their lifestyle. Like they're like, what, what else is the advantage of this place, right? I, I've made this money, and I want to live around people that have the same amount of money as me, that look like me. Is there yeah. something wrong with that? And I guess the weird thing about suburbs too is that taxes sometimes in some of these suburbs are actually kind of high, right? But they go to their local school boards and stuff like that, or their local city taxes. And so I guess what Joe Biden, what's Joe Biden? I keep calling him Joe Biden because clearly <laughs> I might be more interested in Joe Biden than Joe Biden. But I guess what Joe Biden would say is right that taxes aren't the problem, right? You should be able to pay your taxes. You should have some community control over your neighborhood. I mean. I think he might be the neo-segregationist that we've always been talking about. So maybe he would even say, look, uh, the Guatemalan community that you've chosen not to live with down the street, you know, I mean, they deserve a school too. It doesn't have to be as good as your school, but they, they got to have a school. I think what's weird is that Trump is a real globalist, but somehow he's been able, in this way that he does frequently, he's been able to project it onto the other side. I mean, Trump makes his money from these multinational hotels and this club Mar-a-Lago that sells memberships to people who are Americans and not Americans. He's not really he a globalist. Money around. That's different though because he's not. I, I see. I disagree there. So the, the like he moves his capital from abroad. He takes huge loans. He doesn't exploit Europe. global labor though in the same way that the Democrats seek to exploit global labor. It's a very different thing. I think he definitely exploits global labor and global capital. And I think that's, I think that's so, look, the dude runs, what's Miss Universe besides a global labor exploitation, right? Yeah, but that's not- All around the you're, world. You're trying to, you're trying to muddy the waters. You're talking about like yes. 200 people versus like tens and so, hundreds of millions of people that- I think what Trump has- No, 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 that's not that fair. He's always been a niche. I think what Trump has going for him is that he's always been a niche product, right? So it's a small business, but not a, but not a mass scale. But it's completely, no, Trump is definitely selling out labor too and capital. Trump is a globalist globalist. And I think, all right, go for it. I think Trump is a, Trump is a globalist globalist. Uh, you're trying to muddy the waters and make it seem like it's the same thing. Like 200, 200 models is not the same thing as millions of manufacturing jobs. It's just not, it's really not. And, and Trump's it's not. And Trump's doing it for personal gain, not to not for the gain of an entire class of people, right? At the expense of another entire class of people, which is the game the Democrats are playing. It's very different. Like, and it's very frustrating well, for someone well, like me, I, when I who who considers himself more of a labor. That's like one of my major issues. When I, I I've, you know I hear these things get like somehow conflated. Like, oh, we're not the real globalists. We just want to make extra money off Apple by making stuff in China. You know, having Uyghur kids make our phones. That's cool, but that's that's no worse than having models compete in the Miss Universe competition. I mean, listen to yourself. That's ridiculous. That's that's a false equivalency no, no. if I ever heard one. What I'm trying, I'm not trying to say that they're the same, right? What I'm trying to say is that Trump is also a global. And I don't think that I don't think that you can make a one-sided argument. I don't think it was as though the Democratic Party, without the Republican Party, created this system in which weaker kids are making iPhones in China, right? I think that was one of the dreams of the Republican Party with support of the Democratic Party since the 1970s, right? I mean, what was the opening to China actually supposed to be about, and who made the opening to China? Oh, sure, but I mean, I but, think, but who really I opened it up? Was it was a, it was Clinton. This was a who opened the tech. Work was I think Clinton. this was this was definitely coming with Bush, and I think you have to imagine that this was what do you call it? I think this was used to defeat. 
the Great Society of Johnson, right? After the long war in Vietnam and the idea, which I think was also mistaken, that we could transform Vietnam into some kind of, I don't know, TVA, social democratic, modernized, authoritarian modernization project, right? There was the idea that we could peel off the Chinese Communist Party in the great war against communism, which you have to remember was a core part of the fight against the evil empire of Ronald Reagan. And I think there is an argument to be made, which I only accept, right, that Joe, Joe Biden, all these characters, I think Trump as well, are all ghosts of the age of Reagan. And they all bought into this kind of idea of, um, they all bought into the diagnosis of the 1970s, right, that the crisis of stagflation was caused by overly strong unions and, what do you call it, and, and overly restrictive capital controls at home. And they also bought into this idea, which I think actually the Republicans are still buying into, which is that the U.S. is in direct competition with other nations. And that part of the way that we could win that competition was by what do you call it, raising interest rates at home, making capital more attractive, and therefore making capital actually come back into the United States and away from places like Europe, Japan, um, and the developing world, right? I mean, that, I think it was a core goal of American policy and a core goal of the Republican Party. And I think Trump is interesting, right? Because like you were saying, Trump, to his credit or discredit, doesn't actually do policy in the sense that like, he's not like, oh, I want to transform the nation for the public good, right? Trump is a pirate. Correct. But Trump is a pirate of globalism, right? I mean, Trump is a guy who is like, and I don't think what's wrong with missing. I, 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 I disagree with your definition women. of globalism almost entirely, by the way. Like, I almost disagree with everything you just said, to be honest. But keep going. <laughs> I think you're really trying to muddy the waters on what globalism means. You're basically saying Trump... So. I'm I saying think, you're basically I'm saying Trump... To accept all, you're, you're saying just because all of, Trump's, all of Trump's businesses are not solely in the United States, you're saying he's a globalist? That's not the same thing. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Trump is a man who has thrived on the global free movement of capital. And he's thrived on what one might call, I think, a core... Fundamental value fundamentally of neoliberalism thrived because of like American grants too, like that he got in New York City and stuff like that. I mean, it's not huge American grants, huge loans from um, from Germany. He just ran from, so afoul of, of his American loans that he couldn't get any more here, and so he was forced to enter this international exactly. loan. This scheme is a market. core element of what it means to be a globalist, right? The neoliberal system means that there's a global market for capital. And those people who've thrived in that global market for capital, particularly surplus capital, which has existed um, offshore, the offshore dollar market, have done really well. And Trump is one of those people. And to make Trump also interesting, right, he's done the other thing that neoliberals realized really early on, which was that capital is global, but labor is not perfectly global. And so Trump has basically exploited visa regimes, the immobility of labor, the surplus of women in Eastern Europe to involve himself in what we might call trafficking. And he's made a fortune off of it. And he's also made a fortune off of selling passports. And so the idea that there's a lot of people in the world that basically need places to invest their money. And so they need to buy uh, into what we might call, that's the, called, dark, that's just the, called dark, the dark side of globalization. Wow. Yeah, he's an arbitrage. He's an arbitrage. And I mean, what else is there? I mean, what are the best globalists, right? They're the arbitrators. Arbitrationists. What do you call them? Arbitrators? Arbitrators? Arbitrage. Arbiters? Arbitrage. Yeah. yeah, arbitrage. I mean, you can't be mad at him. I'm not mad at him as an individual player, right? I mean, he's a great 
uh, I mean, his gift is in arbitrage, right? Regulatory arbitrage. I think. I but think the reason I disagree with not you, globalism, I it, think, is it's is not wrong. It's, I, I think you're wrong. So I, I think the history of globalism has to do with the fact that globalism has to do with state integration of capital with foreign markets. He's not about integrating with foreign markets. He's about extracting max value from foreign markets. And so, like you said before, he's a pirate. Sure. Like maybe he he reaves and ravages on foreign shores, but I don't think he like deeply integrates with these foreign markets. What, which name the businesses in which he's done that? It's just not true. So he's a poacher, sure, but he's not a globalist. He's not integrating with these markets to extract capital. He's just literally stealing what he wants and giving nothing I mean, Trump back. Is not a, it's a big. Trump is not a one one worlder, right? But I think this is it gets to a bigger fight that between me and you about what we think is the path forward. Right, so Trump is definitely not what I would call uh, a one-worlder or a Davos man. Right, Trump is not like Trump is making no attempt to build uh, visionary global governance, visionary right? globalism. Yes, sure. Yeah, Trump is yeah. not trying to build global governance. Right, like Trump has no ambition to create a global labor standard. Right, Trump has no ambition to regulate, like to make sure that regulations are harmonized between countries all around the world. But, but by Trump your no definition, to like but, control trash flow or to be like, look, we're not going to dump toxic things in the ocean or anything like that. But my problem is by your definition, the like, for example, the international slave trade was globalist. Do you agree with that? Is that a globalist movement? It was globalist. Yeah. See, that, we, see we have different definitions then. The international slave trade was definitely. I mean, that was one of the that was one of the international slave trade. Going, I think one might even say until the First World War, because let's not even put it only on what I think is often done reduced to the African slave trade, right? But, you know, the global movement of people in indentured labor until maybe World War I was definitely a globalist moment, right? I mean, it was what we often refer to as the first globalization. It's when we learned that we can make commodities on a grand scale, integrate them into different markets, and we can move people at willy-nilly all around the world. I mean, but the Mongolians did this. Genghis Khan did that. So was that the first globalization? Well, I mean, see what I'm saying? Like it's make arbitrary. The argument that there have been a lot of globalizations. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very arbitrary. Say, I mean, one might say, and I think this is one of the problems with globalization as a term, right? Where does globalization fit in with the idea of empire? And so. I think Americans. I, I think it's. I think it's supposed to be a post-empirical term. Actually, is part of the definition of what because globalism doesn't really become a term until post World War II, right? Like so, like that's when the concept really takes root. And so the whole concept is maybe the age of the empires is over, and how do we integrate with these other societies economically, but yet still keep keep the uh, you know boot on the neck. The American advantage. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that. I think. And, and that's that's the only reason I'm being a little pedantic right now and debating with you on definition, and I'm saying you're you're muddying the waters no, I mean, because I, I think like no, I mean, for me that's the definition I'm working with. I mean, I obviously hear yeah, I obviously hear what you're saying. I, no, no, I think that like I think it's why it's important. I mean, I think you've raised a really important point, which I I think the U.S. has always defined itself as a post-imperial nation, right? I mean. We're real, and whatever textbooks that we've written since World War II, right? I mean, we imagine ourselves as being born by rebelling against an empire. My friend is so funny. My friend teaches at uh, Drexel, and she teaches South Asian history, and she's like, every year she has like a white student come into class. She's a South Asian woman, Bengali woman, and she's like, every year I have a student come into class and sit down and say, well, if the Americans were able to get out of the British Empire, why didn't the Indians just revolt? You know, why couldn't India do it as well? And it's like this weird thing, right? But American story is right, right? We had these brilliant white settlers 
you know, great plantation owners themselves. And they rebelled because they didn't want to pay taxes. They were like, fuck the bullshit, we're out. And that's uh, how we, we see ourselves as an anti-imperial nation, right? But after World War II, and I think this is where our collective imagination starts to get a little, a little, uh, a little fuzzy, we adopt the imperial title, right? So the presidency we have now, leader of the free world against the evil empire. I mean, Reagan said it best. It's like sounds straight out of the Star Wars movies, right? I mean, there's... Well, he was obsessed... I guess we're the rebel a lot. He was obsessed with Star Wars. I mean, that's, he, yeah, he yeah. clearly thought that was like the he's best like, set of films ever made. He's like, I'm, I'm building the Death Star. We got lasers in the sky. He called his program Star Wars, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was... And he gave that great speech about defeating the evil empire in Florida. I mean, but, but I think... Because we're a post-imperial nation, we didn't say after World War II, look, we've created an American empire. Our troops in Japan and Germany signed the empire. Whatever we're doing in the Gulf, right? I mean, we said that we were globalizing, right? But I guess the question is, is globalization, our globalization in the American empire coterminous? And maybe some of the, the fights we're having now or the discomfort we're having now is this question of, oh, maybe they're not as coterminous as we had taken for granted. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that might be true. I, I think a lot of the problems that Americans are having are, is the, the dual nature of the current, you know, empire or globalism, however you want to call it. The fact that they're both having to compete on high-end and low-end jobs with with people that aren't citizens, right? And so, like, they'll, they export, like, mid-low-level mid jobs, like the manufacturing jobs that we now know were pretty good jobs and maybe could have stayed here, at least some of them, Right. And then they also do things like import all this cheap tech talent from India and places like that because they don't want to overpay domestic tech workers. And they complain they don't have enough talent when that's clearly not true. Like we know that's not true. So it's, it's a double-edged attack, right? And so and I think that's why some of us like, think that you know, little, little nationalism is called for. Maybe just a little. Yeah, I mean, I think a little bit of nationalism could be called for, but I think a little bit of nationalism in the U.S. also requires a frank examination of the American empire and, and a, an honest discussion of what the American empire is and what we mean by globalization, because I think we've conflated the two. And who's a member, like you're saying? Like, who gets... Well, who, that's also another... That's, I think that's the I biggest... Think, honestly, I think that's the currently the biggest debate happening right now. Like, who gets to enjoy in the benefits of this expanded wealth? Right. I think that's why these people you're talking to that, you, you know, we'll call the capital branch of the party. They're like, you know, we can't talk about raising the capital gains tax or my taxes at all because they're like, yo, I, I have, I'm, in the, I'm, in this, I'm well positioned and I don't want to share this shit. Like, you know, fuck the noise. And if it gets bad enough, I'll, I'll peace out. I'll go to Europe or something. Like, I don't care. But what I've noticed and what I think is also really scary is that within both the Trump administration and amongst, I guess what we might call the moderate, our capital wing of the Democratic Party, they actually have really similar uh, experiences. And a surprisingly large number of them seem to have come out of what we might call the security state. And I think one of the things that was quietly missed since the 90s is how many people have been able to go into the national security state and then make money supposedly in tech and are now just arbitraging that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, and I guess that's what you're saying. Who are the members? I think that we don't realize there's actually definite members of the empire who would like nothing more than to protect their privileges. And I think, I think it seems so amorphous, right? Like, we're like, who are these people? Where are they? What are they doing? And you're like, I don't know. It can't be 
it can't be uh, only a coinky day that all these people like went to Afghanistan for whatever various purposes and then bought tax-free apartments in DC and have seen the prices in DC like jump up super high and then have used that wealth to you know leverage their position into Silicon Valley like I I mean one off these are all just like you know anecdotal stories but I don't think they're so anecdotal right I think there's been a lot of money made on things like the war on terror and that money I think increasingly sees itself in its role as having a decisive role in things like Silicon Valley and places like that. And that's why it's kind of crazy that last night there was literally no discussion of foreign policy. Not a single, not a, not a minute of it. What's up with that? I think that's also scary. We like to pretend that foreign policy doesn't affect domestic policy is what's interesting here. Like, we, like you just said, it's, like, it's all integrated, right? They all affect each other. But we like to pretend like somehow they don't, right? Um, and I guess that makes it easier to, to obfuscate what's really going on. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think people don't realize... I think, yeah, I think people don't realize the integration between foreign and domestic policy. And people are really loathe to, like, think about how much of foreign policy actually affects economic policy. Yeah, and I think America's also just, frankly, still dealing with the concept of being a post-industrial society. We still have the echoes of that whole that whole struggle going on. Like, what do we do with this former industrial sector? Like, where do we put these people? Do, especially if they don't want to be educated. Like, what if they don't want to be part of this, like, service economy? What, what, what do we do for them? Well, a lot of Americans also seemed, and I guess this is another thing that Trump has done really well, a kind of nostalgia for for a 1950s, right? But that was a period in which the other industrial sectors of the world have been bombed out. And I guess that's where... You know, Trump keeps saying it, right? He, one, the one thing I guess you could say he talked about that might be foreign policy was he was like, I rebuilt our huge military. You know, he's like, I've made it a beautiful military. And I guess if you want to return to the 1950s, right, you have to build an even larger military at home. Because, I mean, I was on this Clubhouse app and some dude actually said it. He was like, well, I mean, I guess we could try to destroy the other industrial sectors of the world. And I was like, oh, snaps. <laughs> but, I mean... But I think this is where, you know, we talked about this a little earlier. Adam Tooze had a good point. Like, we maybe misremember the end of the Cold War. Like, we think it was all voluntary and was a great victory. But it's not clear that we won any of the wars in Asia. So it's not clear how well this strategy of military dominance in order to protect the economic heartland will go. Yeah, but it all has this kind of like, I don't know how to put it, like almost like a neo-Malthusian, like, like perspective that they have that like we're all still competing over these like fixed resources right and like there's a scarcity that we have to be worried about and like what happens if china gets there first and gets access to all these minerals i mean that's still undercutting like a lot of these policies right yeah i think there's a strong whiff of that i mean i think trump is completely 100 percent in on that perspective right like this, I, this kind of neo-Malthusianism, which I guess goes back to the other thing that you were telling about his new genes, right? I mean, Trump is like, the only time I saw him get really mad last night, or the first time I saw him get really mad last night was when Biden said something about stupid, and Trump was like, stupid, who? You finished last in your class. I go lie. To I told school. you, I told you he was going to do that, and it was pretty funny, because he was like, don't you ever use the word stupid around me again, boy. Yeah, he was <laughs> like, he was like, you went to a state school. You finished near last in your class. And then Biden was like, but you're still stupid. And you're kind of like, oh. I don't remember Biden clapping back like that. We have different memories of that moment. But uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I thought it was a, a clown push. later. He kept using stupid. 
Yeah, I was like, you're both stupid. That's what I was thinking. I was like, you're both a bunch of morons up here. I mean, you're both Cena. Senility is not far from either of them, right? Oh, they're both in various forms of dementia. That's clear. A cognitive decline, as people like to call it. <laughs> but Trump's in like the, he gets aggressive when he gets confused, and Biden just gets like this like lost look in his eyes, this like lost puppy look where you're like, you're like, oh, bro, snap out of it. And thankfully last night he did. Um, I thought the end, he did very well in. I mean, now, do I think a lot of that was like pre-memorized, rehearsed stuff? Yes. I, I think he rehearsed some really good spots. But the spot that he gave um, about voting was very good. Um, I also thought it was very good the way he addressed Trump's attack on uh, his son. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was probably the lowest point for Trump of the whole debate. I mean, that was just classless, man. I mean, I, I know Trump is classless, but that was pretty, wild, like, wow. The other problem is I didn't actually feel like I understood what the hell Trump was talking about. So he kept saying, you got $3.2 million for some mayor in Moscow? And I was like, what? It's probably something that he was having Moscow push at the same time as the debate. Some sort of coordinated media attack. Because I had no idea what he was talking about, too. But the thing is, he's talked so much bullshit, I had no desire to Google it or anything. I'm like, who cares? Honestly, who cares, Trump? Whatever. Sure. And I thought Biden I thought Biden was very poignant when he admitted that his son had a drug problem and that his son is trying to get better. And I'm like, that's something that I feel like who doesn't have a person in their family, you know, who's fallen a little bit on hard times, who's trying to get better. Well, and actually, so there was a point in the debate in which I think Biden misused uh, a little bit of statistics, but he should have used it for the drug addiction thing. And when he, when she said about COVID, he's like, you know, how many of you in the in the crowd are out there are missing someone in the room because of COVID-19, blah, 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 blah. Well, it's only been 200,000 deaths. That's a lot of deaths. But I mean, if you'd have asked how many of you out there have a child or a relative that was addicted to something, oh, that's, that's everybody. How about that? That's almost every person in America. And so I thought it was just really low and like, frankly, and if you look, you know, and very mature of Biden not to even bring up Trump's kids. I mean, one of which who clearly is on something every time he gets on screen. So, I mean, come on. <laughs> it was his class. Hey, good job, Joe. It was. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, I think that was... Yeah, I think, I think that was one of Joe's best moments. I mean, I think what makes it really hard to talk about Joe in the way that we were talking about him earlier is that... I don't know if Joe is really an ideas man, right? But I think Joe has a kind of empathy to America... Like, I guess the thing that I think Joe has, I guess, against sort of the pirate ship, dude, is that Joe kind of is like a guy who, who sort of, I guess, with Elizabeth Warren, and maybe you're right, maybe this is with a moderate Republican position, sort of have this belief, which I don't know as minorities we can believe in, but they sort of believe that America is a society in which if you play by the rules, you should be able to do okay. And that seems to be a core, a core sort of emotional attachment of Joe Biden. Yeah, that's the great American myth, though, right? It, it's and it's and it's it goes both ways, though. You're missing the more important part. The other important part is that if you've done okay, maybe it's because you've done right. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden clearly believes in that element, right? Like, you know, if you play by the rules, you you treat people sort of okay, you can have your own private American dream. I mean, his life story is about it, right? Like, you know, I served for 47 years, I did okay. Needed to take a loan from Obama, but I got out of office, made a bit of money, got, you know, the vacation house, the nice house for my moms, set my son up. And then there's a tragedy too, right? Like, you know, the idea that he lost one of his sons, his oldest son, 
he lost, you know, in the American Armed Forces, right? This idea of service, right? Like, he put his kid in the armed service because that's what good kids do. Whereas, like... But there's also this concept from him, and this is what's not going to play well with the Trump supporters. I don't know why this is something that sticks with them so hard, but it will. Is what she said, he did nothing wrong when he received the $50,000 a month to work with the gas company. For a lot of them, they're like, I mean, come on. There's clearly something messed up about that. And if you're not going to acknowledge that, and that, that you guys are playing in a different lane for different rules, because we can't do that. I wish I could do that for my kids. Must be nice. Right? But he's like, that's the, that's the correct way to do it. And it's like, who are you to say what's the right way to do it? I think a lot of people are saying. Well, just because I mean, that's the problem. Just that's the way you did it? Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, th- I agree with you. And I think that's one of the big divides. Right? I mean, I think that becomes sort of the economic or class divide between, say, the professional class and, like, the business owning class, right? Because I guess Trump would say, look, I had to employ my children in my own firm, and we had to go out there and struggle and fight for each one of the shady deals that we got. You know what I mean? Like, I had to go get in the mud and, like, do some haggling with some dude in Dubai to figure out how we were going to build this, you know, license this uh, pizzeria name. Yeah, and we, we were like building our, like, our own empire. We weren't grifting off of other people's work. That's how they see it. Oh, we were at least honestly grifting, right? We were at least in the souk, in the market, like haggling it out, you know, one-on-one with the homies. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what they're saying. They're saying we said we were doing it for Trump. We didn't say we were doing it to help international relations with the Russians or somehow stabilize the world or some bullshit like that, but I can only do that for $50,000 a month. It's like like something I noticed when I, I guess I've I've been in academia now, seeking my whole adult life, right? And academia is really shady in the sense that like nothing is ever done for, the one thing you can never say is that you're doing something for something, right? Like nothing is ever done for money, supposedly, right? You're, it's always an honorarium, a gift. Or it's like, uh, you know, I edited this book supposedly for free. Maybe I'll make some money on the backside. But it's this idea, you know, like free lunches, free dinners. You know, maybe somebody one day will be like, oh, Alden, you're such a worthy individual. Here's 50K a month. But it's a weird, it's a weird, I get it. It's like, it feels kind of smarmy, right? It's like, what are you, are you the church? Like, are we talking, are you the Vatican? Like, why are people giving you money for being a worthy individual? And why, and why do you hide your market transactions behind uh, this obfuscatory language, right? Well, you know why? Noblesse oblige, right? <laughs> it's like this whole concept that like, Sure, we're the nobility, and sure, we do have a special lane, but we, we, we're taking care of people while we do it. Like, that's, that's why it's acceptable. That's what Biden believes in, right? That, that, that concept, almost, that sure, sure, we're oligarchs. Sure, we're going to take outsized rents as compared to the average person because of our position, but we're doing it in service of you, like you said, and so it's acceptable. Like, what else? Well, Biden would probably say that he's not an oligarch, right? Biden, Biden would maybe say something that maybe is even more disturbing. Biden would probably say that he's, like, a senatorial or a praetorian, right? Like, what, what makes Biden different than, say, like, a Mike Bloomberg or somebody, right? Is that Biden would probably say, look, I've dedicated my whole life to public service and taken no particular interest in finance. And people have noticed my nobility, and therefore they've gifted me a few things. But I don't control... I guess Biden would say, look, I don't control the means of production, right? I don't, like, exercise direct economic power. 
And I think that there is a difference, probably he would say, between people who should be in politics and people who should be in business. That these are two different, these are two different spheres. Yeah, I agree with that. It's, it's, it's almost like a, a, a sh yeah, yeah, I agree. And I guess like what makes Trump for them dangerous or dirty is that he's mixing the two, right? He's saying that politics is business and business is politics. Which maybe is true. Maybe it's more honest. It's definitely more honest. I guess by, Trump is like, I'm in here to make the cash money loot. <laughs> and I think, I think that's, you know, once again, what's undercutting all of this debate is who gets to enjoy in the profits. That's all. I think to some extent we're seeing a tug of war happen between interests on the Republican side and interests on the Democratic side. And like you're saying, maybe they're all globalists and just like how, how do they make their money off the global market and which parts of it face them better for various reasons. Well, right? I mean, you are right. Some of the worst globalists, I think, to ever walk the earth or some of the most nefarious globalists to ever walk the earth, if that's what we want to call them, was Clinton. And I think, I think Hillary's decision to decide that she could run again after, you know, after the pact, I think she really broke the pact, right? Because the pact is, look, you were really worthy, you did some great things, you know, here's 100 mil so that we never have to hear from you again. You know, it's like, thank you for your service, right? But I feel like the whole thing kind of broke down when Hillary jumped back in there. It was like, but you're like, wait a minute, you already took like 400 or half a billion and now you're back? You know, you're like, you're like the game is supposed to be like, thank you for your service. It's been great, right? Like the way we pay off our generals. You know, we give each of our generals like 20 mil and we're like, please don't ever talk to us ever again. And so like, I think that was supposed to be the payoff, right? But... Well, she, she obviously had her, her own outsized personal interest in being president, too. I mean, we know that, right? Yeah, and, like, I think that really broke whatever gentleman's agreement might have existed before. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, oh. But speak, but speaking, speaking of gentlemen's agreements, what do you think about them asking, sorry to pivot so hard on you, but this was very interesting to me. What do you think about the fact that Chris Wallace asked explicitly during the, the debate whether or not they would respect the norms of the election. Am I the one that found that very strange and inappropriate? I was like, you shouldn't even give him the chance to say, like, why are we, like, you know what he's gonna do. They're not gonna have a serious debate about this right now. Trump's just gonna go, eh, and then it's gonna be a, a, a reaction moment? Like, what was the point of asking that question so bluntly? Shouldn't we just, like, imply that there's no choice except for him to? I feel like Joe Biden spent a lot of the debate trying to basically say that Trump doesn't have a choice. But then I feel like I guess the problem with the media plays is weird. I mean, Trump has been a genius at playing the media and that Trump realizes that the media basically will follow up whatever. The media is basically suggestible, right? So Trump has put this out there and now the media is like, oh, well, Trump put this out there. I guess it's something we have to talk about. But at the more they do it, the more they norm it, don't they? And they make it more of a possibility. Am I the only one that fears this? Like the more people yeah, yeah. hear it over and over I mean, and over, once it happens, they're going to be like, oh, I guess it happened. Like they talk. Yeah, I mean, I think... Trump is norming this, right? Trump is Trump spent the end of the debate basically saying, vote if you want. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to steal the election. Some of you guys should probably stay at home. I mean... And they just let him do it. It was a pretty, like, direct and beautiful setup where he's like, I mean, haven't you guys seen the pictures of the, the military uh, ballots in the trash? They all said Trump on them, everyone. And so he just, he's throwing out the possibility that maybe there'll be a bunch of Biden ballots in the trash and they'll all say Biden, everyone. You know, tit for tat. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Trump is basically saying, look, and I think the thing that, I think the thing that most Americans, and I think Biden also failed on this. I think, 
I think because there's a conceit that this doesn't happen in America, it's been really easy for Trump to make these moves, right? I mean, he doesn't want to talk about the long history of electoral interference in America, right? I mean, how many people... I mean, this is, we also live in an era where we've repealed um, several clauses of the Voting Rights Act where it turned down to be unconstitutional, right? And so... The idea, Audit. I mean, Audit. How about this? Counties. This is the first election in like 40-something years in which it, it is actually not illegal for the GOP to participate in voter intimidation. It's actually completely legal. And that's what he was talking about when he was like, I want you, my guys to go to the polls and just watch them, watch closely. That's about voter intimidation. That's that's what he's doing. Yeah, so, I mean, Trump is calling for widespread voter intimidation. And, and I think we just forget how long a history of voter intimidation there is in the United States, right? I mean, the reason the Voting Rights Act had to be passed, right? And it had to have these clauses about supervision by the Justice Department, which no longer has a legal obligation, according to the Supreme Court, to do those things, right? And so... Democrats have spent a lot of time saying they could do things like win Georgia, but is anybody sure that Georgia's going to have like a, a valid count or Florida? Or I mean, all sorts of counties around the country, right, will just be throwing out ballots. And I think that's one of the things that I'm worried that Biden might not be prepared for. It. Like, how are we going to get people, how are we going to get the Democrats to be mobilized for the kind of shenanigans that are about to take place. And is it even going to be possible? Because, I mean, it looks like what they're going to do is some sort of pincher attack, right? Where they're going to try to slow down the vote counting as much as possible. And then he's going to make some sort of appeal to Supreme Court, etc., to stop the counting like they did, right, in 2000. And be like, this is enough. This has gone on too long. It's bad for the country to not know who the leader is going to be, etc., etc. And please make a decision. Oh, by the way, uh, Notorious ACB, who we just put on last week, thanks. You know? And that's, that's pretty much what they're going to do. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Um, and that's just assuming he doesn't, it's not close enough for them to just throw a few hundred thousand ballots out and just call it a day in the first place. Maybe they can just throw out 30,000 ballots and call it, I think that's what they'd prefer. Yeah, I mean, they probably don't want to have to go to ACB. <laughs> not yet. I mean, they might have to. But that's how I think you get to these, like, kind of nasty electoral scenarios, right? Like, I don't think... I mean, he, has, he also has this other thing that he was talking about uh, in the interview, which people didn't pay enough attention to, which I think is even scarier. I mean, he was saying it's completely, you know, constitutional and legal for him to just designate hand-picked delegates in each state and just tell them that he... have them come up and say he won. What's wrong with that? The Constitution say the states elect the president, not the people. So he's like, I can just name, you know, name the electors, have the state legislators vote on it. In the swing states, they're mostly Republican, all but one, call it a day. They say, I won, I won. That's constitutional. Yeah, I mean, we've come to see, I think, that our Constitution is not fully adequate for the situation in which we're in. And there's a lot of norms. Like, a lot of this is all based on norms that people have been observing for a very long time, which aren't... They're not, they're not constitutional barriers. They're just not. Yeah, I think we, I think, depending on how the election goes, we could just be in a lot of trouble. In deep waters, as they say. Deep waters, uncharted territories. But I, I thought one of the best tweets I saw is it's a, it's a hell of a thing to be living in an empire in decline. I mean, it really is. It's very, it's, it's interesting. I'll say that much.